Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. 6.45, March 19th. It's about 15 degrees. I'm on my knees on the Massachusetts Turnpike. And I'm cradling Alexander in my arms. The rush hour traffic is going to work. It's really cold. And it's it's not necessarily processing, but I think I get it. I lost my daughter right here. She's just gone. I can tell she's gone. And then from that point on, it's trying a little bit to make sense of it. That is our guest this week, Dean Valoris. As you can um, tell from from that clip, this is going to be a, a heavy episode, but it is also, I promise you, uh, aside from being really moving, uh, quite inspirational and reassuring on some profound levels. Uh, Dean is a father of three and an everyday meditator who uh, started practicing um, back in 2015, uh, as you'll hear in 2018, he lost his daughter, Alexandra, to, to suicide, and uh, I heard about Dean's story after I saw uh, – I got an email from my friend Jim Axelrod, who's a longtime anchor and correspondent over at CBS News um, and a friend. He sent me a story he had done on Dean and his family and mentioned that Dean was a meditator and that had, uh, he had read my book. And uh, did I want to talk to him? And not only did I want to talk to him, I thought actually maybe the rest of you would want to hear from Dean. So uh, in this uh, interview, we we talked to Dean about something I I think is incredibly important and 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 really gets to the reason why I wanted to have him on. I think I think really two two things actually. One is we're in the middle of a mental health crisis in this country, especially as it pertains to young people where the rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide have escalated quite dramatically. And the other is, I think, Dean is a fantastic example of how meditation can help in really extreme circumstances. And if he can stick with it and derive value from it in uh, in his situation, I think the rest of us can really draw some uh, inspiration from that. Just one thing to say before we get started, which is that on the back end, we're going to have a whole list of resources if you want to uh, learn more about this subject. But for now, here is Dean Valoris. I always start with the same question, which is how did you start meditating? So what's your story? I started meditating, I'd say around 2015, early 2015, I stumbled across your book, 10% Happier. That was I think it was in Audible. It sort of pops up as like, hey, you know, you know, try this. And I, I thought to myself, wow, eleven eleven ninety five <laughs> or one credit. I think it is if you're an Audible subscriber. Why the hell wouldn't I want to be spend eleven bucks, twelve bucks to be ten percent happier? And if I'm wrong, I laughed. And what I found was it took about four or five chapters before I think it was like around the Eckhart Tolle aha moment. You know, when you you kind of hit a point where you're like, oh, and it took me a while to get there, but you carried me forward because the the skeptic that you were, I was you already had me at hello. (laughs) 
So I had to work my way. And I'm like, come on, buddy, get there. <laughs> and then, you know, I started to like, okay, all right. It's about now. Yeah, but what does that mean? And then that's been the journey. What do you mean now? I am in the now. Or am I? Oh, wait, I'm thinking about tomorrow. What did I do yesterday? Or, you know, whatever I'm spinning on, you know, which is all the time. And that's been sort of that journey of that was the starting sort of stamp in the ground saying, okay, there's something here. Did you actually start meditating at that point? Yeah, I tried it. I think I downloaded a Headspace app because I, I like, you know, the graphics were so stupid simple. <laughs> you know, you look at it and it says, watch these cars go by. Oh, the cars are your thoughts. Keep watching them go by. Oh, yeah. Cool. All right. I think I got it visually. Now you settle in. And I thought it was a good. So I did that for about, a, I think, about a year, year and a half. And did it fade at that point or? Um, no, it was, um, I think that launched me into Sam Harris's Waking Up. The book? Wh- the book, yeah, which I'm still, I think I'm on my fifth or sixth time and eventually I'll chew through it to actually get the, um, you know, the, the essence out of it because it's, it's, it's a lot. It's so funny you say that because, I mean, Sam, as you know, is a buddy of mine and me- really huge formative force in my life as a, because he was one of the people that really got me over the hump to, to take this thing more, this meditation thing more seriously. I have read that book at least three times, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe four times. Yeah. And every time I get something new out of it, it's a great book. Right. It's, it's like, so it's like, um, it, it's just a chuck full of nuts. You got, you can keep going back to something and, and pull it out and you're like, oh yeah. And then you still step back and say, it's still very simple. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, what is this first line? The mind is all we have. It's all we'll ever have. And I'm like, oh yeah, I can start there, start there. What can I do today? And, and then I get caught up in the day, you know, and it's, I'll say from 2015 to now, especially in this past year, I think I've, you know, I've earned I'll give myself a pat on the back for saying at least it's more present throughout the day. There's moments within every hour of the day where I say, hey, man, where are you right now? All right. Stay here. You know, what matters in in trying to take a breath, Um, performing at work, performing at home and, you know, getting better. Still got a lot. It's, It's definitely a practice. Yeah. Yeah. But what I hear there is really good practice. What I hear there is if you're one of the original, I've been talking about this on the, on the show in, in recent interviews a lot. One of the original translations of the word mindfulness is recollecting or remembering. And mm-hmm. that is because for some reason, it's one of these things I've heard for 10 years and it's never really landed with me, but now is starting to become more and more powerful for me because what you're describing is it's just your remembering to wake up every once or twice an hour. Well, that's yeah. huge. Yeah. And that you just, all, the more you practice it, the better you get. Yeah. In my is, experience. I will say there's, you know, there's, there's a little bit of an urgency there because once you've sort of tasted the waking up portion, you, you I go into these sort of spins of what the hell have I been doing for the last 50 years? My gosh. How old do you know? <laughs> 51. Okay. <laughs> but I, I, you know what? I, I, I find that statement to be very powerful because I'm, I'm 47 and you're thinking, okay, you're looking at, I don't know how many years left and right. ha- have I wasted a bunch of time? 
and I don't know how much time I have left, and I have a little kid, and I don't know how much time my parents have left, and I want to be here for it. Right. And the whole thing is not, I don't want to get uptight about it and stress too much about maximizing every moment because then I'm kind of doing the opposite of how I should be just living and relaxing into it. That's right. Well, that's a hint. <laughs> There's a, you know, the, the, a classic hindrance to meditation mm-hmm. is desire. Yes. And so if you're clamping down too hard, that's just desire for clarity as a control. Yeah. Or just yes. trying to, you know, have those the feeling of security that you've built over the years or whatever your definition of success is. And you're trying to just stay with keep those knowns known when they're they're variables. So set the table for me, like sort of biographically on you circa 2015. Yeah. You've got yeah. three kids. You're living in suburban Boston. Yep. What's going on in your life that this idea of being a little bit happier would be attractive to you? Uh, I'll say it, it was probably on my second or third year not putting pesticides in my lawn. Right? Where does that go? Like, where the hell are you going with that? And it was just looking at, like, why don't we do what we do. Why does the lawn have to be cut at an inch and a half? Because I live in a suburban neighborhood and it's a nice neighborhood and I'm very, I'm proud to raise my kids there and it's a safe neighborhood. And I'm like, but do, like, is this what I need? Do you need like an acre? Do you need a house that's like, we don't fill up that space. And I just started to question why. Um, Part of that journey as well is, you know, with um, my children, Alexandra, Emily, and Nicholas. Alexandra was my my wonderful intellectual beam of I could just keep pounding those questions at her. I'm like, why do we do that? Like, let's not let's not put pesticides in the lawn anymore. Let's enjoy the dandelions. <laughs> Damn straight, right? And so, 2015, for some reason, it was maybe that you know, it's probably. You know, we could have a doctor here telling us, I'm like, oh, yes, yes, you're, how old are you, 47? Middle-aged men go through this a lot where they reevaluate their lives or it could be something along those, you know, along that vein as well. So I just started to say, you know, what can I learn? What can I read? And, you know, Alexander was a part of that journey from, hey, I just read this book, 10% Happier. Is that that guy on ABC? You know, and I, mm-hmm. hey, I just um, try Sam Harris's his first chapter did the meditation, and Alexandra had tried it, and I had tried it as well, and she was like, Dad, this doesn't work. I'm like, why? <laughs> she goes, Well, I was thinking about what to wear tomorrow, um, what I'm going to do after school. I got the robotics club, and she had all these things that she was working towards, and I was, I'm like, Yeah, it's crazy, and then you know. And it was hard in that sense because we're trying to be in the stories but think we're we're not realizing that you have to step out and say, we are not our thoughts. Mm. You know, and but she was she had been part of that since, you know, two thousand fifteen, two thousand sixteen. And then more so me, I think I just continued that because I found value in trying to carve out fifteen minutes a day which is hard when your brain is in high gear. 15 minutes, what's it going to do? All right, all right, just take 15 minutes because you promised yourself, right? And that it's been enough to help, I don't know, just maybe keep questioning 
thinking and then breathing, you know, and just trying to, and I feel like it's a, it's a live current though, because sometimes I'm good, sometimes I'm bad. Yeah, it's the question, it's interesting what you mean by good or bad. Yeah. Yeah, or if I go by the old rules, you know, or I feel that it's it's a little bit of a new me because I haven't, I keep trying to relax into the present, you know, mm-hmm. and, and trying to figure out, uh, all right, can I do this to, you know, can I do this at work? How do I bring this to work and just not be a stress ball? Was it helping? Um, yeah, I, um, I. I had introduced um, last fall my, my one of my first day coming back into a billable assignment for a few months off, and I was stressed and I was feeling not as confident as I would have liked to. And I said, you know what? Just bring it. Just show up. Just dress up, show up. And hey, guys, I got assigned. You know, I got worked in into a team, and sat with the team and said, let's let's take three breaths. Let's just, we've got so much stuff to do over the next six months. Let's, we already know it's coming. So let's just know we're a team and let's just start. And so I started my daily standups. We call them for our agile methodology. Uh, for that's the name of the company. Um, that's the name of the methodology oh, used in um, the sort of the consulting work that I do. And so it was like, it's been helpful. We do at uh, 10% Happier, we have our, we have standups. Yeah. Stand up meetings every morning. I think I don't know. Yeah, ten fifteen are... minutes, and you just you know cover ground. What are you doing today? You know, what have yes. you done? What are yes. you doing tomorrow? Yes. And yes. is anything blocking? Yes, I haven't been to one because our corporate headquarters <laughs> are in Boston, and I'm here, so I'm not part of the stand up. But uh, but right. so it sounds similar to what you're doing, right? I think what was interesting. I think we probably should, you know, step back and talk a little bit about Alexander. Yes, right. Yes, and coming back to work. You know, billable that September 1st was a challenge for me just mentally, getting my getting sort of back in the game. So September 1st was the day you went back to work. When I went back to work. So now. Of 2018. Of 2018. So if we rewind one year, when, you know, it's a little over a year ago, you know, um, my wife, Alicia, um, Nicholas, Emily, we, we lost. We lost an awesome friend, a daughter, a sister. Um, Alexandra, and we lost her March nineteenth, uh, two thousand eighteen, and that was a that was man that was really quite a shocker, because nothing really stood out as signs or anything. I mean, six forty five, March nineteenth, it's about fifteen degrees. I'm on my knees on the Massachusetts Turnpike. And I'm cradling Alexander in my arms. The rush hour traffic is going to work. It's really cold. And it's it's not necessarily processing, but I think I get it. I lost my daughter right here. She's gone. I can tell she's gone. And then from that point on, it's trying a little bit to make sense of it, not to go crazy about it, <laughs> but it's hard. I'm trying, I think what we're trying to do is put tools in place that allow, well, honestly, selfishly, me as a human to continue to operate. Your family you know? needs you. Yeah. I mean, you go right down the list, you know, you know, 
you've got your you've got your kids, you've got your you know your family, and yeah, but I'm no good if I can't process this in my mind. Yeah. If Alexandra couldn't speak up and felt that she was a burden and felt that that was a solution to her pain, well, one, I wish I could have been there and had a conversation, but two, why couldn't that, why, well, I don't have to say why doesn't it happen to other people because I think we learned from uh, Jennifer Ashton a couple of weeks ago that the stats are pretty high, right? I mean, it's an epidemic. Yeah. And that opened our eyes because then you start looking and reading, reading a little more about the stats. And you're like, oh, man, a lot of people are dying by suicide. Forget about suicide for a sec. And you got people who aren't, um, I don't know, mentally resilient or have that resilience. So maybe they dance in depression, you know, or that anxiety. I know I have felt more, not depression, more anxiety and stress that I'm trying to figure out how to process the heck through so that I don't um, tighten up all the time. Some days I'm really good at it. Some days I'm not so good at it, but I'm trying. Is it anxiety and stress or is it grief? I'm I'm having trouble putting a name on it. I've got to first label it. (laughs) So it's grief. It's, I'm... I get really, really, really sad. And then I say, and again, to what I learned a couple of weeks ago from just you having Jennifer on, she talked, I think, about multiple truths. It's about the and. You can feel sadness, and I can swim in this god-awful, this sucks. I miss Alexandra so much. At the same time, I'm laughing with my son, Nicholas, because we're watching the latest Marvel comics, Spider-Man. At the same time, it's like this. um, It's like, to me, maybe the definition of bittersweet Mm -hmm. in a way. Like This is like two emotions at once where you're like, wow, I'm having a fun time. And it's almost not quite guilt, but it's just you feel on the other end. And there's no more of these times with Alexandria. Alexandra, of which there are so many. Yeah. All right, be grateful, I'm happy, but you know what? It also sucks. Of course. <laughs> of course. I, I remember reading a article in the New Yorker by a father who had lost a child to disease. Mm-hmm. And he said, a parent who's lost a child has a new organ whose only job is to secrete sadness. <laughs> and you don't know when it's pumping out extra juice, it comes when it wants, when it wants to. You know, I could be driving home. Of course, you have all the triggers, uh, song triggers, places that you've been. Sure, those are going to come. Why wouldn't they? They're such good times. They're such good memories. But they punch you in the face. Well, do you you have to drive (laughs) under the bridge? Yeah, well, we drive over that bridge multiple times a day. My wife does uh, the kids to practice. Um, to just regular, we do, and some days are nothing. They're absolutely nothing. You just drive over, and then there are times where they just oh, this is this is I'm going to go a different way, or you drive over and it hits you because you're like, damn, damn, this is all, this all happened, this all happened, you know, and it, you just keep catching yourself. We're like, oh, 
Yeah. Alexandra's gone. And it's not like she's gone on vacation or she's gone away. She's gone forever. I don't get to have another conversation with her. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That sucks. Because we were good friends. She was a great daughter. She's a really, really good person. Thoughtful. Kind. Nice. Just fun to be around. Caring. <laughs> I, I want to take a deep dive into how you're doing and what the, the various techniques you're using to cope, because I think that's inexhaustibly interesting. <laughs> but I do think it makes sense maybe now to step back and t t tell us a little bit about Alexandra. You just did, yeah. but maybe say a little bit more. And also the events leading up to, uh, it was a night, nighttime, a night. Um, sure, sure. Um, well, six forty-five p.m. You said. Well, that was six forty-five a.m. So uh, let me give you an idea. It happened. Yeah, night. how it how it how it happened. So we I have the Google location on for all the kids in the family, so we know where everyone is. Um, in the morning, when we woke up on a normal, otherwise normal Monday morning, right? Alicia got up to wake up the kids. I'm a guy. I sleep as late as I possibly can. I don't know how you can get up in the morning. And um, Alicia was worried. Alexander's not there. I'm thinking she went out for a run. She went out with some friends. Uh, we're thinking maybe she's broke a rule, maybe something, but it's just not in the sphere of possibilities that there's anything that Alexander would have done that seemed out of, I don't know, I don't know something I wouldn't otherwise be proud of. I don't know how else to say it other than that. So was I worried? No. But by that 6 a.m. till 6.45, you know, um, we I find myself on the Mass Pike and Alicia's on top of You the tracked plane. her down through the cell phone? Well, that, not at the time. We looked back later to track her events. Thanks. I can probably clarify. So the actual, what had actually happened was she left the house at around... Um, 12.45, 1 a.m., went to the bridge and took her life. And the Mass Pike is a major highway in Massachusetts, right. just to clarify for folks. And how did you locate her? Um, well, in the morning came, we were just sort of driving around. I, I had my phone on, and, you know, telling my wife, I, 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 she must have dropped the phone because I was going up and down North Street, not realizing I'm driving over in the freaking Mass Pike, um, not realizing it. You know, that's it's always another one of those, you know, damn. But anyway, Alicia took Emily to go to school because it was getting late, um, Blackstone Valley Tech. And on the way there, they sort of tracked the patterns. And I don't know if it was Emily or Alicia who saw her boots, her water bottle, her jacket, and her journal you know, stacked neatly on the pylon on the end of the bridge. And they pulled over, they called me, and I headed out of the car. I got out of on my car and headed back, saying, damn, I was by this three, four, five times. So we stood there, and then it looked so stupid to be standing on the side of a bridge reading your daughter's journal, getting a sense of dread. You know something's wrong, but I, nothing's processing quite yet other than, well, why don't you look? So I leaned over the embankment, and I saw Alexandra. All right. So, you know, I jumped the fence and ran down, and I was I was hoping that 
maybe it was recent, maybe she was warm. There was nothing. So we lost her then, and I was just stunned. I mean, Alicia was stunned. Emily was just sitting in the car, not moving, just stunned when I'd come back up. And, well, we, we had waited around for, I don't even know how long I was down there. Honestly, it's a blur. I think the thing, one of the things that hits me as I was talking to Nicholas uh, maybe a few weeks ago, Nicholas, what were you doing Any, when we were at the bridge? This is my son. He's 13 years old. And he said, um, Both the uh, children are younger. Yeah, so Emily's um, 16 now. Nicholas is 13. And, and Nicholas says, I was waiting for you guys to come home. But he knew the dread. And, I mean, he was definitely kind of, he knew something bad had happened. I'm like, oh, how hard is that? To sit there in an empty house, you're not going to school. You know, you're like, you're just waiting for your parents to come home to find out what happened to your sister, you know, and so Those, those are hard. We miss her. Mm. So where were we? <laughs> I guess what was, I have a million questions. I was just coming up in my mind is like how impressed I am. I mean, um, I, as a father, you know, I worry about this, if something bad happened to my son all the time. Mm. I, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to admit how often it goes through my head. Right. Um, but it's, it's really frequent. And if I imagine how I would be if I lost him, I don't think I would be as, you know, you have a yeah. light in your eyes. There's uh -huh. a brightness in your eyes. You're alive in there. It's very obvious mm. to me sitting here looking at you. And you're speaking so well, and you're upright and not fetal. And <laughs> I just don't, I can't imagine how I would be able right. to do that. So that I was guess. June, July, August into September the, uh, of 2008. Yeah, that was that panic attack. That was the things that were just closing in, me, in on me of rules change. Things are changing of like, okay, is this how, is, is this how? What does this all mean? How do you lose Alexander, who's brilliant, smart, you know, just, you know, just dives into the subject very, you know, she was pining for MIT. She was really going for, you know, the big schools and what can she do and pushing herself. And I love that about her. I love that self-driving push. We love that we never saw the double edge or we didn't, I didn't even sense that that was a, you know, a, you know, one that could cut the other way. Meaning I would recommend everybody and perhaps we'll put it in the show notes. We will put it in the show notes. I would recommend everybody watch Jim Axelrod's from my friend from CBS, his piece spe specifically the one that was on CBS Sunday morning, yeah. which is the longer version, which is really a love letter to your daughter, and you will see a phenomenally, ferociously impressive young woman who's in the robotics club, straight A students, am I right? And you yeah. talks to one of her teachers who said, of my whole career, she's one or two, yes. number one or number two of the smartest yes. humans I've taught. So, and she, this is just a very impressive person. And you're saying what I just heard you say is something about the double edge. You think there was something in the strive, the striving for excellence that by all appearances was was there, 
Mm-hmm. That she was the, the the other edge of that was she was cutting herself. I think so. I think there's something to that where if when we learned through going through the journals, and I haven't gone through every page because it's not constructive for me. I got an idea. I've got lots of help from uh, Jim Axelrod, Wendy Krantz, his um, producer, uh, his producer, yeah. correct, um, Mark Arsenal, who was the Globe writer, who took the time to sit with us for. You know, six, seven, eight. I can't even remember all the sittings. He got to sit with me in a very angry, stunned state. And we simply build a relation. We built a relationship of, he's like, you guys just say when, I'm out of here. This is a Boston Globe reporter. Yeah. And and what he gave us was a construction because we had, we trusted. We decided to trust him. So when you do that, you know, we handed over the journal. And what he gave us was a heartfelt reconstruction of the the day, hanging out with or that night going to with Alexandra to uh, a Biffy Clyro concert in the Paradise in Boston. But that night, her writings in the journal were so opposite from the fun I thought she had had. It's it's interesting because there's video of her that night. I yeah. watched in Jim Axelrod's piece. Yeah. Uh, in his story, uh, there's video that I did. One of you, maybe you or somebody yeah. shot of her at the concert. She looks happy. Yes. But then you see her journal entry from that night. If she yes. said, "All I want, I just wanted to be by myself. I just want to be." And she was just in, in the the cover, or what she gave us was a sense of like, she was having a good time. And again, probably definitely stressed. AP courses, junior in high school, lots going on, but it didn't feel as a parent. Alicia and, Alicia and I didn't feel it was out of the norms or it didn't feel like it was extreme. It just felt like, all right, something we just keep muscling through in a way, or at least that's the way I felt. And Alicia was working towards, you know, you know, hey, Alexandra, is everything okay? You know, in a sense, we're more quiet than less quiet. And, and you know, in hindsight, I have about a dozen things where I'm like, oh, Dean, why didn't you see that? Or why didn't you see this? But honestly, it was nothing that I have to be honest to myself and, and give myself and our family a little credit. And I'm not going to beat I'm not going to beat the out of myself because I can go down this rat hole of why didn't I do this? Why didn't do Why didn't I do that? And I just stop, look at that, and saying, okay, these are again these are sort of my thoughts ready to rip me apart if I want to go there. We are good parents. I know we are. She's an awesome kid. I think she got caught in a little wormhole of thought that was hard to come out of when you don't feel like you want to share it, you know, and you don't want to at least be vulnerable. You said when you read those or when you became aware of the contents of the journal, I know yeah. you didn't read all of it, but um, you, you really didn't have any visibility into the depth of the anguish. Yeah, no. No, um, it was a shocker to find that my daughter would be constructing sentences like, you are worthless. Uh, You are a burden. You are a burden. And it goes, and it goes, it's this self-loathing that goes really deep. I'm like, oh, I think um, uh, Emily did a good, uh, Emily, who's 16, my my second uh, child, she said, um, she had, had been sitting looking at the, looking at the journal about three days after the event. I, as a dad, I'm like, oh, no, I don't want Emily reading 
Alexandra's journal, this is all way too fresh. And I think she just held up her hand and she says, don't, just give me a minute, Dad. She scans through. I'm like, okay, two minutes. And then she looks, she closes it, and she just pushes it aside. She goes, this is not the Alexandra. This is not Alexandra. This is not my sister. I'm not understanding who I'm reading here. And that helped me to say she was in a different place by the time that journal progressed through the fall into the winter, into March. What would you say to other parents who are listening to this just terrified? Yeah. Um, hmm. Always a great question. This is usually where my wife, Alicia, will have a more maybe eloquent answer to that. I don't know. The answer is, I don't know. I have to, I, I don't want to try to throw things out there to say, talk to your kids, you know, open up with your kids more, you know, or. You were doing that. Read this book. Yeah. We were doing that. This is an pretty open family. We have great conversations at the dinner table. I mean, all the time. So if this can get to someone like Alexandra, it does scare me because I think it steps back into a, a mental resilience. And this might, maybe this is a little bit of a, a segue to where we go, but if you can recognize that you're not your thoughts, or at least step back to say, look at me, go. At least have a capacity to say, I'm spinning like crazy. I need help. Or this doesn't feel right. Then you should at least maybe make it a point to talk to three people. Talk to three people you're close to. This is weird. My mind's spinning right now. You know, I actually am thinking that this world doesn't need me. Or, you know, if you're thinking like that, you can get it out there, have a conversation with someone that you trust. Because if, if you can't do that, it's got to start from you. The parents are outside going in. It's your mind. It's the person in the mind. Like, yeah, I think that's, I would say it starts from within. And how do you build a mental resilience from within? And honestly, I would say childhood meditation maybe or starting early enough so a kid says, Whoa, look at me go. I'm freaking out right now. All right, I still want to freak out. But they have enough <laughs> of a visibility into their own inner processes so that they're not sure. Uh, so that they recognize, oh, this yeah. is this is unusual. I need to talk to somebody. Yeah, and we're not an expert on like childhood development or when concrete goes to abstract reasoning. I know there's that whole um Piaget talks about how you can kind of look at things a little differently and your mind develops. But I've got to think that you can start pretty darn early where a kid can just go. And that has weight to it. That means something as opposed to it doesn't quite have that gravitas today. Right. I don't feel it in the schools today that that's that important. We spend more time doing teaching about other things than getting a good base of operations in our own mind. So you think we are at a, we're at unprecedented levels of anxiety and depression among young people these days. Uh, so the answer, if I'm hearing you correctly, is when we when we talk about what has become an epidemic of, of teen suicide as well, is less about what individual parents can do, especially because kids mm -hmm. don't always show signs, 
but it may be more of a systematic approach to teaching all young people to have some sort of inner visibility, to have some sort of inner resilience so that they can talk when they need help. Right. I think so. Right. Something along those lines. And it's more that becomes more of a program, more of, a, you know, a collective investment. But even if it's just you, you know, mom and dad and you got two kids and you think, what can I do to help with depression? Maybe it's something to say, let's let's start with a little bit of slowing things down in the head. So you have space to observe you're still going to be anxious. You still may be depressed. But I think that's a starting point. And then you can array the modalities and the tools and all the things you want to build on top of that. But start with an idea that you are not your thoughts. And I think that's probably, I don't know, I'm, I feel like this is still fairly new to me, but I'm trying to practice it because I don't really, I don't really have, I don't really feel like there's another option for me anyway. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger. Never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but... The data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or tmobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. So you've been through what I would imagine to be the worst thing anybody could go through. What are you doing to keep yourself upright? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. So first of all, I, I promised, I think I, I promised my wife that I would stay open. The first thing you want to do is close off, you know, a little bit of an F you to the world, a little bit of like, ah, uh, you know, I, I've lost control. How did this happen? So then I say, okay, what's the opposite of that? It would be being, remaining open and trying new things. So step one is to keep trying new things. Um, you know, you, you shot me a line to say, you have an interesting story. You want to come down. My first instinct was like, 
oh, Willie's in the stomach. Like, why would I want, why would I want to put myself out there? And, you know, I'm, this isn't necessarily my style. And then I say, why not? Why wouldn't I want to try? And why wouldn't I want to do something that I otherwise, like, and then, and, and that's been sort of my mantra. And that's led me into meditating in the morning. So it doesn't matter. I have, um, I think this morning was Olin Sofer. Orin Sofer. Yeah. Orin Sofer. On the 10% Happier app. On the 10% Happier oh, right. app. So that right. was a 15-minute pull down, get it, just, and, and start. And I think that was around just calming, you know, just calming for an anxious performance anxiety, stuff like that. Um, every day, grab something um, and do it. So I have, um, um, I have the Waking Up podcast from Sam Harris. I use his. He changed uh, the name of the... He changed the oh. name of the podcast to Making Sense. Uh, yes. but he also has an app that teaches to me- people to meditate, which is called Waking Up. Yes. It'll take a year or two before he gets his channels right. Yeah. Marketing channels right. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> you know, it's hard when you, he got such a good groove with the waking up. Yeah. It's, it can be all. So I, so I use that. And the idea is anything and everything. I tend to need guided because that keeps me focused as opposed to an unguided mm-hmm. Um, in my pocket, I have three dates for a 10 day retreat, but I'm scared crap to do, but I'm just, I got three dates, a 10 day retreat. Maybe I'll try that someday. It's on the docket. Um, I've, gosh, I've entertained, um, meditation with gratitude that helps because when you think gratitude and from what I've read, if you're feeling it. I'm really happy to be here and think of the joy that we're getting being in New York for the first time as a family. Yeah, we should say that your your wife and, and uh, children have come down and made the trip. I'm looking at them right now through the glass. Yes. That's, um, <laughs> They're waving back. There's a gratitude. Like I can sit and I can honestly say, this is cool, right? This is fun. I'm doing something with the family. All right. And, and you can feel the gratitude. So you can take that feeling of gratitude and apply it to as part of my conditioning, whether it's 15 or 20 minutes a day, I'll try to meditate with gratitude. I try to set some, um, um, what are they, mantras, or I'll just say, like, I'm worthy. An intention. Maybe. My intention. I am enough. Um, I am loved. Boy, those are simple things to say. You know, two guys, I'm 51, you're 47, yeah, you know, hey, let's talk about, let's go get a beer and talk about how you're worthy, how you're loved and enough. <laughs> How does that go down, you know, in hanging out with the guys, right? Two, two guys who grew up in sort of the <laughs> macho Boston uh, right. situation. But I have to say is it kind of exposed my underbelly of, oh, maybe there's something to you not feeling worthy that you feel like you drive, 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 drive. Or you aren't enough that you drive, drive, and you push forward. Okay. It strikes me that those mantras or intentions or slogans, whatever you want to call them, they're kind of like the opposite of your daughter's journal. Yeah, I, I haven't thought about that. I mean, I'm kind of, I don't know if I'm on a selfish journey or I simply feel like if I don't get my game together, I really felt like this past summer, I don't want to repeat the panic attacks. I don't want to. So I feel like this has been helpful. You were having actual panic attacks? Yeah, I remember crying, waiting till someone would come home, you know, and I remember doing that a couple times and it was like, wow, it's pretty strong of not feeling, just feeling very tense and anxious. So getting a regular habit or practice of meditation, 
making sure you're feeling that that uh, a power, whether you want to think chakras, whether you want to just take in, you know, energy or a grounding or visualizing a white light or, you know, there's something to taking that in and either turning that into yourself and applying it to where you feel you need it the most or projecting it out to you and just wrapping you up with white light of love. And I'm not practiced at that. I don't have years of that. But I'll sure as heck keep that going because it does put me in a state of being more compassionate. I go through the day just a little more, a little more, I don't know, tooled up with, with, um, I don't know. It's like, all right, don't worry. Anything that comes along your way, just try not to get wrapped up in your thoughts. The chakra white light thing, where, yeah. who, who, where are you getting that from? Yeah. So, so my, sort of my influence is, um, Dawson Church has a book, Mind to Matter. Dawson Church. Dawson Church. Okay. I thought that was helpful because that's once I sort of camped out on the meditation, says, okay, 10% happier, my foot's in the door. I'm in the door and there's something. All right. What else? Where do you go from here? It'd be interesting to hear like where your journey is because, all right, you got five, six, ten, I don't know, about 10 years now. Yeah. You're into it. So... How, you know, where are you from that practice? Um, for, for me, I think I, I got a foot in the door and I still need to honor that because I can't ever assume I am, I don't know, not that I don't want to assume that I'm stable and I've got everything going because I don't. When I lose it, I lose it and that's okay. I'm trying to process, let the grief come, let it wash over me, but don't hold on to it. It's about the, the impermanence of things. It's about, I think, um, the gentleman by the name of Joe DiNardo you had on. Yes, yeah, who lost what his wife. Lost yeah. his wife, but yet he's working and processing through it. He seemed to have game around meditation in a good place. Mm-hmm. I don't feel that. He'd been doing it for decades, though. Right, and I'm like, oh, I didn't quite feel that. Like, I don't feel like I can just camp out and just say, I'm just going to go meditate now. I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm going to grieve like a, a mother. I'm going to grieve hard and I'm going to say that's okay. And grieving hard meaning lately it's been writing in a, in a blog and a friend suggested put it out there. Expose your underbelly, but, you know, just if it feels right, let it go. So that's been another method I've been using. It's just writing it down. My friend gave me a link to WordPress, which uh-huh. is a way to blog. So I'm kind of new to this too. Um, and I just created this thing called a Facebook account. <laughs> I had promised Alexander we'd never go there. We'd <laughs> never go to the dark side. But I did create it and um, I because I wanted to send that link so s- someone could look up my name, Dean Valoris, on Facebook. And I'll, I'm readily going to accept, but I'm not doing it necessarily for – personal connections, I've already agreed, I've set my intentions that I would like to share my stories because there's other people out there who are feeling what I'm feeling. And through that, you can get a link to the WordPress. The proper URL will be in the show notes for this podcast. Um, so would you say, you know, you were talking before about impermanence and like some another thing I've been thinking about recently is that impermanence can be deeply inconvenient and then incredibly convenient. It's deeply inconvenient when you realize that Mm. You and everybody you know, we're all impermanent, and that's hard. Right. 
And then the convenient side is when you're drowning in a hard emotion, if you can wake up in the middle of it and say, if I lean into this thing, or not a thing at all, actually, if I lean into this set of feelings, Mm -hmm. they will pass. And that is really convenient. And and here's how I... Here's how I think I I know what you just said is true. Um, I'm drawing a blank from where I read this from, but it's really hard. It might be Sam. Damn, Sam Harris keeps coming up. He's I get it's it. hard to sustain your anger. Like if I'm angry at something, you know, or whether I'm really sad or I'm, you know, think about Alexander. I can stay there. If I, it's a little bit easier, I think, you know, with Alexander. But just on the surface, if you're angry at something. You almost drift away from that after three, five minutes. And then it's like, oh, why was I pissed? Oh, that damn guy cut me off. He almost took off my front bumper. What the hell was he thinking? People drive like crap these days. And then I, you know, I'm I'm just working back into that state of whatever it is or like getting, you know, just whatever worked me up. You know, I just, I get the spoon and I just stir that pot. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to get out of here. Hold on. This is, I just want to, let's just talk about how bad this is. Yeah, that sucks too for you. Yeah, it sucks for me too. <laughs> do you ever get, the, yeah, yeah. And, you know, we do that. Sam, I think the riff you're referring to, and I've, I love this thing he said, which is that the half-life of anger yes. it, or of any emotion is like two minutes. Yes. Right? So, but the problem is, we re-up it voluntarily. We we take the spoon, as to use your analogy, and we stir it up yeah. because th- we don't know any better. And so anger gets extended from two minutes to an hour to a lifetime. And his his argument, and I love this, is that the the difference between the amount of damage you can do in an hour of anger or grief or whatever it is or jealousy or whatever it is and mm-hmm. two minutes, well, that difference, the delta there is incalculable. Yes, and I apply that, so that's sort of like something that I had read, 2015, 2016, whatever. And it still holds true. So when I'm driving home and I have a trigger, and it te- seems to happen at different, I never know when something reminds me of Alexandra that hits me and hits me. It's usually a song that we loved or even like you know a new album comes out that we would have shared. I can't share it with her. And then I get really, really sad. And I'm, okay, you're going to cry. All right, you're going to ball. All right, you're going to probably punch the dashboard. All right, put your blinker on. Get over and, you know, and, and sometimes I, lately I've been blogging, or I'm not necessarily blogging, but just writing down in like notes exactly what I'm feeling. How hard is it? Go there, go there. And let it rip. The one thing I can say that I'll argue Sam's half-life <laughs> of two minutes when you're in this, this sadness is so it, like I, it's actually it's a gravitational pull, but there still is a half-life. So I know it may not be two. And for the example I'm thinking of in Westboro center, going home from work where I pulled over to write down, I think it was my sunny reflections vlog. It was 15 minutes of pure bawling, crying, and then something, it, I don't know if it evaporates or just distance where I say, you know, it is time for dinner. <laughs> you know, you do have Nicholas to bring to lacrosse at 7.30. Or you do have, I'm like, okay. And then you can choose to feel guilty and say, look at you forgetting how important Alexander was. And you should, you should live in this. 
You should stir that pot. Damn it. I miss her. I miss her so much. But what's the damage I'm doing, right? What's that damage I'm doing? And so so those there's a tool. There's a tool to say, you are, I'm not my thoughts. It's just a good one. I have so many things to say. It's just incredible practice. Because when Sam's talking about the half-life of anger, he's talking about garden variety <laughs> annoyance, right? You're talking about something, a tsunami, right? Yeah. A tsunami. It's not in the yeah. ballpark. And so the ability to wake up out of that, I can't, I can't imagine it. I can't imagine it. But it sounds, to me, to my ears, unbelievably impressive. Um, it's a practice, though. Of course. Because... You know, it it doesn't doesn't necessarily come naturally, but some but it's but it's coming up more than than not to say, hey, hey Dean, you feel like stepping back from this one because you're about to go deep and you know you know where this might go. It's just it's just an, it gets to an ugly place. I'm like, yeah, I think I want to dance here a little bit. I think I want to be a little bit ugly. Right, all right. And I, it's something trying to say, give myself permission, but boy, it's a, it can feel the 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 slippery slope of sadness of like, okay, let me just make sure I keep keep trying to carve some lines there, because again, I have to negotiate this in my mind, right? Oh gosh, I don't even want to talk about my sadness for Jeremy Richmond. Um, just another, that's another tangent, but. Boy, when I heard about his passing, um, Jeremy, the um, I think he's a, was heading up the Ariel Foundation. Yeah, Aviel, his daughter, Jeremy, Jeremy's daughter, Aviel, Avi, he called her, uh, died in the at the massacre at Newtown, and he was on the show. He was in that chair. He was on this show, yeah. and he was an incredible human being. We met him. You met him, and we got to see him. We got to see uh, Brene Brown's Daring Greatly. He gave us VIP tickets and said, I can't imagine what you went through. Yeah, he can. He lost his daughter. That's just as bad. I get it. And he, he was he was. How there. did he hook up with you guys? Um, my wife, Alicia, reached out. She reached out to the Aviel Foundation, and they responded. And they said, come on down. Keep going. Keep going. Try new things. Come on. If there's a talk that you think might help, get on out. So we drove down on a Tuesday night. I thought he was the coat guy. <laughs> I was in two hours for a car. I had, to, I had to go to the bathroom, and he's like, hi, how are you? I'm great. You know, is the food over there? I need something. And I kind of, I, I, I felt like a, I felt like a dink. <laughs> My wife, of course, you know, how wives can be. Hi, Jeremy, this is my husband, Dean. I'm like, oh, Jeremy, it still didn't dawn on me. I'm like, okay, so she knows the guy's name. And then through the course of that night, I got to see a dad who stood up on stage, who didn't look like a guy who would stand up on stage, who spoke very well, who spoke with a passion about something he believes in. And I had just finished Brene Brown's um, um, Daring Greatly. Um, in her new book, Daring to Lead, Re Lead we, we're reading now, my wife and I. But I was so impressed with Jeremy and his courage. Look at him after six years. So let's go back to the slippery slope. What do I do with that, right? As a, as a guy who I thought was negotiating it as a dad, as, a, as someone who's trying to negotiate his way through this thicket of right? What? And 
he's gone. Yeah. He chose as a solution or a way to end his pain to take his own life. Yeah, very recently. And uh, and we, in our little 10% world here, that obviously threw us for a loop. And I, I can only imagine what it's done to his family and the people in his immediate circle. And yeah, so, mm-hmm. which is, you, you mentioned Jen Ashton recently, my colleague, Dr. Jen Ashton, medical correspondent here at ABC News. We had her on to kind of help us process that because she lost her husband to suicide. She's it, very helpful. Yes, uh, she she is very helpful. So I, I, I don't know what to – I still don't know what to make of it. It's hard. It's so, really hard. So you can start each day. I start each day trying to find the time to just give a little pause because the day's going to get ahead of me, work and stuff, and then say, how are you doing today? What's my mind like? All right, I want to be here. I know I want to be here. What are the things I can do? And what, you know, what, keep moving forward. And so I'm trying things like doing things I've never done before or just saying yes. It's a little bit more in that Brene Brown daring greatly, which is being vulnerable, leaning into your fears. I mean, leaning into them. And okay, all right, it's kind of hard when you have the stress and anxiety that's rising, but I'm like, okay. Let that come. Let it come and see if you can see if you can do this. And each time I do, I'm I'm finding that I'm surprising myself. What would you say to people listening to this who have gone through horrible things or know that Mm -hmm. in life we all go through horrible things and are worried about folks may be worried about their own ability to to handle it? It sounds like your overall message is actually maybe we're stronger than we think we are. I hope so. Here's what I've been getting. Um, or when you're when you lose a daughter to suicide, you hear a lot of stories. I think people need to share. A lot of times you find yourself listening, and it's not necessarily about your story, Alexandria. About it's it's about a person sharing what they've gone through. I think everyone has a story. I'm learning very quickly that everyone's got a story. Um, what I'm not so sure about, and, and, and I, ho- I hope I'm wrong, but what I'm, what's resonating is I, I see a lot of fear. I see a lot of fear. I see a lot of people who are nervous and and not sure how to carry forward other than by being tight. You got to hold it together, Dean. You got a family there. Come on, bud. We're counting on you. I know how hard it can be. Toughen up. Toughen up. That worked for like 49 years. Throw anything at me. I'm going to come back at you twice as hard. Something's changed. The tools of saying toughening, toughening up, muscle through it. I can handle anything. Or I'm thinking of parents saying this is how it is. I don't know. I think if you slow down and have a little bit of faith, I don't know how to use that word in the sense that I'm using. It's like leaning into things you otherwise wouldn't have tried. I think we atrophy as we get older. We do less and less and less. Mm -hmm. We get more and more slow. We get a nice, good chair to watch our show on, (laughs) make sure it can recline. And where do I put my drink? And all right, hello, 85, maybe I can make it that long and just sort of settle into it. Let me put on the, you know, the, the news, the, the channels that work for me. And I, 
actually think we need to turn all of that on its head. And if one, you're not listening to, again, you can listen to whatever amount of news you want, but it should be from all sources. It has to be from all sources. You should talk to people you don't agree with. You should do all these things. And it's real easy to know what you don't want to do because you know when you start shying away from it. Mm -hmm. Um, It starts by lack of eye contact. Put your head down. I don't want to have a conversation with someone. Um, It starts when my son Nicholas tells me, hey, Dad, it's uh, parents' night if you want to play seventh grade basketball. Of course, he tells me at 722 on a 730 practice. But I've got my gym bag in the back seat. I drop him off and I drive away. I don't want to make him look bad. I don't know if I can still dribble a basketball. It's been 12, 15 years. I don't even think I have the capacity to run up and down the court. This is all as I'm driving away. But, oh, look at me. I'm smart enough to put on that Brene Brown audible audible book. And I'm like, oh, and then it just hits me. I'm like, ah, dude, stop. Why not? Why not try something? Do things keep breaking out, keep testing the edges. So I turned around, went back in, played basketball, hopefully showed him and his friends I got a little game. <laughs> got a little We're looking at him. him. He's smirking. He's not giving you too much. But it was a great night. But everything I thought about that night from that 722 to 730, those eight minutes, was not a positive thought. It was like, oh, only how I could screw it up or only how I could maybe not look cool as a a dad to a seventh grader with his friends. And now I'm thinking, just go play. Just go play. So these are are examples. I'm like, what I would say to a parent is do something. Think of love. Be creative. Be open. Screw what everyone thinks. Lean into it and try something and, and hell be damned, right? Like, who cares what people think because you already started from a good place. I love that. And it's, it seems to me where you're saying in the wake of this disaster where you could mm-hmm. have done what I would imagine mo- the instinctual move for most of us would be fetal, curl up into a ball, create a shell. Find a local pub for the next 40 years exactly. to get, you know, to own. Yes, to anesthetize yourself. And you're saying, no, no, I'm going to do the counterintuitive thing and I'm just going to open up to the whole world. Mm-hmm. People who disagree with me, people who agree with me, experiences that scare me, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That's your counterintuitive approach to this horrible event. Yeah, and it doesn't come naturally because you want to go, you want to stick with your safeties and comforts, and I still do, but that's okay. I now recognize it and say, it's okay for now. You don't have to be out there all the time. But question it every time. And if I'm not at least, maybe my rule now is I don't even know, once a week, every couple of days, I'm not saying yes. I'm not responding to, I'm probably more social than I've ever been. I don't like to text. I don't necessarily like to call people on the phones. I'm, I'm a little bit like my grandfather, I think, my prepare. I like to just putz around in the backyard. Or just do things and just be a little homebody. Then I realize, nah, this is all about networks. It's all about social networks. Not in the sense of media. In the sense of connecting with people in community. So that you grow and you have a place. 
and you love, and while you're here, you share that. And that's as simple as going to breakfast every month with a bunch of guys I go with and keeping that up um, and or just saying yes to something like sitting and talking on a podcast. I'm very glad you did. I think it's bold and important, and I value it immensely. Uh, and before we close, let me just ask you, is there anything I should have asked you but failed to? Um, boy, no. I, I would think there's – I feel like <laughs> – I have the luxury of listening to you for several years and I love what you do because I think what you bring is a, a sort of a, a you're more <laughs> readily acceptable to a larger channel of people who need, I think, especially in today's day and age, need an entrance to a different way to go about things. So, I do have thousands of questions, but they come from like previous conversations that you had that would be all out of context. <laughs> so step one is the reason, you know, well, what I'd like to say is you got game over Sam because you are approachable. You know, I, I think what I would say is that uh, the Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Haidt reference and the righteous mind of the, um, you can reason the crap out of everything and really have game. And Sam nails it. But it's like he's trying to send all these elephants over to the left. And they're just not listening to him because everyone here, we're all going by our intuitions, our guts, our feelings. And that's hard to change. I think the platform that you bring, maybe a little bit of Joe Rogan, um, it's, an, it's, it's a nice entrance I, uh, and I don't know what the channels are, but I think what you guys do is, I think more, hopefully you see it as you and Jeff Warren and others see is so important because I think we're starting to, um, I think a dilution of information. This is, like, I think, you know, this is today's day and age. We have more information coming in than we can consume. Yes. And we know that. Mm -hmm. So if you can't consume it all, you have to choose your channels. All right. If you got to choose your channels, got to make sure that one's bringing me the right stuff. I think you're bringing that right stuff. So I would just say thank you for having me on. And uh, I do appreciate what you're doing. And you got to keep this going. I, I have every <laughs> intention to keep it going. I really appreciate you doing this. I can't read the minds of our listeners. I have not developed that capacity yet. But we hear from them all the time. And I have a strong sense that people are going to find this incredibly valuable. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great job. All right. Big thanks to Dean for coming in. That's quite brave. Um, want to want to give you some some resources for uh, dealing with this subject. Before I dive into that, big thanks to uh, one of the producers on this show, Grace Livingston, who did a bunch of research. I'm just going to read to you from what she wrote. After the episode we did a few months ago with Dr. Jen Ashton, my colleague, we heard from a lot of you. Uh, that you, you'd like to hear more practical information about how to relate compassionately uh, to the topic of suicide. So before we head into our voicemails and close out the show, we're going to share some resources and information that should help us all flex our compassion muscles on this incredibly important subject. So the, the following information came from a few key sources 
that I would recommend that you check out. A good place to start is a website called BeTheOne2.com. So that's B-E-T-H-E-Number-One-T-O.com. We'll put this in the show notes, but BeTheOne2.com. It was created by the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which offers tangible action plans for helping to prevent suicide. You can check out their resources page, which will link you straight to many other sources for the information we're going to share here. One jumping off point on this subject is to think about the language we use around suicide. It is best to use the phrase death by suicide or someone died by suicide rather than the phrase committing suicide, since the word committing um, has a sinful stigma that may actually deter somebody from looking for help or for going out and getting help if they, in fact, are experiencing suicidal thoughts. So that that was a new learning for me, and I'm, uh, I'm making that switch as of now. be the one com offers a tangible plan for helping prevent suicide with at-risk individuals. I would recommend you check out the full details yourself, but here's a brief overview. Five steps, according to them. Step number one is to ask. So literally asking the question, are you thinking about suicide? Uh, contrary to popular belief, asking an at-risk individual does not increase their likelihood of attempting suicide, but rather open and non-judgmental communication about suicide may in fact decrease suicidal ideation. Uh, an important part of this step is also listening to the person's response in a compassionate way. Step two is keeping them safe by asking questions, finding out more about their thoughts or plans, taking steps to reduce access to things like firearms. If they're in immediate danger, this may also include driving them to the ER. Step three is be there. This may include being physically present, talking on the phone, or finding another way to show support. You want to be careful not to overcommit, but letting the person know that you're there with them can be a huge source of connection and support. Step four is to help them connect. This might mean ensuring they have access to the lifeline, which is 800-273-8255, 800-273-8255. Again, we'll put that in the in the show notes. Or you might connect them to other support systems within their community. You might also set up a safety plan using the My3 app or, or uh, other crisis intervention tools. And the final step, step five, is uh, whether in, is following up, whether in person, by phone, or by text. Following up after the initial conversation helps build connection and ongoing support. So again, the website is bethe12.com. And if you personally are struggling with thoughts of suicide or if you've worried about a friend or a loved one, there is help available. You can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255, 1-800-273-TALK, or you can text TALK, T-A-L-K, to 741-741, or you can visit uh, suicidepreventionlifeline.org, uh, and that's free, confidential, emotional support, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So even if it feels like it, you are not alone. Big thanks again to Dean Valores for coming on and for Grace Livingston for putting together that information. Okay, let's do some voicemails. Here's number one. Hey, Dan, this is Brian calling from uh, Centerville, Iowa. Uh, I've been meditating for off and on about two years now. Uh, had a fallout a while ago and came across your book about two months ago. Uh, ever since then, I've been uh, binging out on your podcast for every day. Um, so I appreciate all of that. Uh, had a, a couple questions for you. Uh, first of all, how do you, I'm hoping maybe you can help me on this. I find myself getting more frustrated than I'd like to with my kids. I got a two, four, and an eight year old. 
you know, I try to stay mindful when they push my button, but uh, sometimes uh, my anger gets the best of me, and uh, I don't stay mindful, and then later on I regret becoming more angry than I like to, and really think about how I could have done things differently. Just was wondering if maybe you had some uh, tips on how to handle that, maybe some different med- uh, meditations, or maybe a, a couple of second read, or a podcast I can listen to kind of help me with, uh, I guess you could say parenting. Secondly, I've been thinking about going to uh, some uh, meditation classes. I'm not really sure which ones I should look into. I know there's a vast variety out there, but uh, I didn't know if maybe you were familiar with uh, the Iowa area, and maybe you could uh, point me in a good direction for that. But I appreciate everything you do. Um, I really, It's really been helping me out, so... Thank you. Great, great set of questions there. I'm going to do the second one first, and I'll just do it really quickly because we've talked about this kind of thing about how to find meditation resources before. But I don't know the Iowa uh, super well, but I think if you just search, you know, insight or mindfulness meditation Iowa on Google, you probably you probably should come up can come up with something. And if you're not finding anything locally, there are teachers who will teach via Skype. Also, there are apps. You know, that's going to sound a little self interested since I have one or we have one, but there are. Many apps out there, and to my uh, just from the noodling around that I've done, uh, they all seem quite good. So uh, that's that on the on the on the stuff about kids. Look, I would give yourself a break. Speaking as a parent, uh, it is basically if you're a kid, it's your job to figure out your parents' uh, weaknesses and exploit them relentlessly. So they're they're going to be pushing your buttons, um, and you're not going to be perfect. I mean, maybe some days and. Uh, maybe if you're enlightened, uh, you're going to be perfect. But I don't know anybody who's perfect. I, I'm going to mangle this quote, but Joseph Goldstein, my meditation teacher, once quoted the Dalai Lama to me. So this is a secondhand quote that I'm trying to reproduce from memory. Something about somebody asked the Dalai Lama once, um, how do you know if you're succeeding in meditation? And he said, well, if you lo- used to lo- lose your temper eight times a day and now you're losing your temper six times a day, then you're succeeding. So – Look, uh, I think that you, you know you're going to take it from a pretty, from a pretty good source. There, uh, perfection is not on the menu, and you're going to lose your temper once in a while, maybe frequently. It's a, it's a really about marginal improvement over time, in my view. Um, but here's one practice from my friend Diana Winston, uh, the great meditation teacher who was on a few weeks ago, that might be useful in those acute moments when something's going on with your kids. It's a little acronym, S-T-O-P, STOP. So I th- I'm going to try to rep- reproduce this from memory as well. So the S is for stop. So you just stop and pause for a, uh, a second, as Diana says, um, With she's got a nine-year-old daughter, and limiting TV during the summer is a place of conflict. So when she finds herself frustrated, uh, she finds that stopping and pausing is uh, really powerful. The T is for taking a breath. There's a lot of science that indicates that deep breathing can have a positive physiological impact, so creating calm uh, and reducing emotional reactivity. O is observe. Observe what's happening. Is your heart racing? Is your stomach churning? Are you feeling irritated, angry, et cetera, et cetera? And simply knowing that you have these feelings can help you not be so blindly yanked around by them. And there's research that shows that naming your emotions can turn down the volume on the fear circuitry in your brain. So this is basic mindfulness. And then P is proceed, hopefully with a little bit more calm and awareness. And so S-T-O-P, 
you know, at first it, it you're going to forget to do it or when you do it, you're going to struggle to remember what, what is S and what's T and what's O. But if you just keep at it over time, you'll develop the mental muscle memory so that uh, eventually you'll get to a situation where some reasonable percentage of the time you'll be able to put it to use and not blow your stack every time your kids push uh, your buttons. But again, uh, don't don't aim for perfection because I think that's going to be pretty dispiriting. Uh, thanks for the questions. Let's do voicemail number two. Hi, Dan. Greetings uh, from George, uh, calling from Athens in Greece. Congratulations. Uh, love your podcast. Love your books. I've uh, been following you ever since uh, very close to day one. Uh, quick question for you. Uh, when it comes down to uh, meditation for non-native English speakers, do you see a benefit and are there any studies for changing and translating the meditation into our native language? Uh, for example, when it comes down to meta, I always find it easier and slightly more effective to translate the metaphrases in Greek. Uh, or maybe uh, the same for uh, the pain uh, and any other things that require noting. Uh, are there any studies, and what do you think about that? Should we stick to English, or are there benefits in uh, going straight to the native language? Thank you. I haven't seen any studies, and all I can answer is from my own personal experience and perspective, like what I would do, which is that I would put it in your native tongue. The only reason I say that is... It's really not about the power of any specific language. It's the power of what's happening in your own mind. And so if it's easiest for you to generate the awareness or the feelings of meta or friendliness in your native tongue, then go for it. Why not? Even if the guided meditation you're using is in English, if it's not creating too much cognitive load then doing the translation and using the words in your native tongue seems to me, if I were in your position, I certainly would do that. And that being said, you know, there are, there are little uh, words in Pali, you know, the ancient Indian language that I've been taught over time that uh, are useful for me, like the word prapancha, which means it's technically the imperialistic tendency of mind. It's uh, when you when something bad happens to you, or, um, and all of a sudden, you know, you you get a you get an email from your boss saying I need to talk to you, and then all of a sudden you create this quickly quick um, and and horrifying movie in your mind of all the terrible things that are about to happen. You're going to get fired and live under a bridge, and it happens just really quickly. You're imperialistically sort of colonizing the future with these um, negative thoughts, fantasies, imaginings. I find that that word, prapancha, is a good mental note when I notice it happening in my meditation practice as prapancha uh, or in my life, noting it. And then that allows me to kind of loosen my grip on it, not be so attached to it, not be so owned by it. So there are times when obviously Pali is not my mother tongue. Uh, using another language can be useful. But in and, and don't take what I'm saying as gospel, but from just my gut is that using your mother tongue would be uh, more useful. So cool to get a call from Greece. That's great. Thank you for following uh, what I've been doing for so long, George. Appreciate that. I know there's another George with Greek roots, George Stephanopoulos, previous guest on this show. 
Shout out to George. Uh, shout out to uh, Mike D, who's running the boards um, uh, as I record this on a Sunday morning. And to the producers of this show, the aforementioned Grace Livingston, Samuel Johns, and El Jefe, uh, Ryan Kessler, who uh, is, is the boss around here. Big thanks to our podcast insiders who give us feedback every week. We look at it closely, and it informs how we do what we do. And, of course, thanks to everybody who listens to the show. We'll be back next Wednesday with another one. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.